Well, whether you're taking in this service in the comfort and safety of your own home, or whether you've joined us in one of the, our three locations this morning, it is a very exciting morning for us in this recent history of the last 16 months as we take another step forward at finally reopening who we were as a church. I mean, obviously, we've never been closed. The church has always been open, and we've never stopped meeting. But we get to take this tiny step forward again at being together as a community, having kids ministry and, and drinking coffee together and having social events on the calendar for August and working towards having live people in all the rooms, delivering all the things on a Sunday morning. It is so good. Except this is the first Sunday in 16 months where I've preached in pants. I guess everything, everything has a downside, but we'll be okay. I promise everything will be fine. But it's been interesting as we've kind of been working towards this moment to think about all of the things that need to be in place before we can actually reopen as a church. We've been kind of doing that provincially as well. We're in currently stage three of the government's three-stage process. And before we can leave this stage and move into what I assume to be is just being fully reopened, there are some things that need to be in place. We need to have 80% of people in the province having received their first dose of vaccine, a mile marker that we just passed this last week. And we need to have 75% of qualified Ontarians uh, receiving the second dose. And no community in Ontario can have less than 70% of double vaccinated uh, people. As well, cases need to be declining in hospitalization and deaths. But, and if all those things are in place, then we can reopen as a province. And it got us thinking as we were, you know, talking about Sundays and church and us being a community together, it started us asking the question, what are the things that need to be in place? What are the criteria? What are the, what are the things that we have to accomplish before we can reopen as a church in the way that we feel that God is inviting us to reopen? And that's what this entire month is about. We're going to spend these five Sundays talking about the prerequisites, talking about the criteria, the requirements, the things that we feel need to be true about us in order for us to reopen as the church that God has called us to be. And so what I want to do this morning is just kind of lay a foundation, lay the groundwork for the entire month by talking at the most basic level about the foundational posture that God is inviting us to live in if we're going to be able individually and as a community to reopen and be the church that we feel God is inviting us to be. And so I want to do that this morning by looking at Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Because I think in this passage, the Apostle Paul kind of lays down that that foundation, the sort of, he describes the fundamental posture of a person who is a follower of Jesus, the, a posture on which everything else gets built. Here's what he says in Colossians chapter three, verse one. Therefore, if you were raised with Christ, look for the things that are above where Christ is sitting at God's right side. Think about the things above and not things on earth. 
The Apostle Paul says, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, then your um, energy and attention is going to be focused on things above, not things on earth. I, I want us to look at a couple of words that he uses in this verse. The first is he says, I want you to look for. That's not kind of casually glancing around. It should be translated, devoting serious effort to strive after. It's, it's talking about what you pour your energy into pursuing. When he says, secondly, to think about, he's not talking about what we casually consider in our spare time. He's saying, live with the mindset of, fixate your attention on, maybe even obsess over. Paul says, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it's going to mean that you are striving after, you are pursuing, you're fixating on and obsessing over not earthly things, but kingdom things. Not the things we don't make as the goal of our life, the things that all people everywhere pursue when they get out of bed in the morning, you know, whether that's wealth and, and possessions or success at work or, or personal achievement or vacation and travel or even um, you know, noble things, meaningful things like family, marriage, kids, and so on. Those are all great and amazing things. They're all things that God has created and given us. They're things to be celebrated and embraced and enjoyed, of course, but none of them are ultimate things. They're good things, but not God things. They're not the things that God has called us to pursue with our lives, to obsess over. We find that I think if you're anything like me, your heart gets drawn away sometimes from the kingdom things that God calls us to and kind of drifts towards the earthly things. You can watch this drift happen in a story in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus is confronted by this young guy. He's a wealthy dude, aspiring and, and, and quickly, you know, rising political star in the local context who's desperately interested in living a, a spiritual life in, in experiencing all of the life that God has called him into. And so he approaches Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is what Jesus says. It, it says in Mark 10 that Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him. And because he loved him, he said, you are lacking one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven, the things above. And then come and follow me. But the man was dismayed at this statement and went away saddened because he had many possessions. You, you can see this subtle divergence between what this man cared about and what Jesus cared about. This man, though he cared about having eternal life, he cared about experiencing God's life for him. What he cared about more was earthly things, his money and stuff. What did Jesus care about? Jesus cared about two things. He cared about the man's heart and he cared about justice for the poor. 
He cared about God's kingdom coming and God's will being done in and through this man's life in the world. That's the fundamental difference, this fundamental posture. Instead of pursuing and fixating on and obsessing over the stuff of this world, Paul says fixate on and obsess over and pursue kingdom things, kingdom realities. I think the story of the rich young ruler illustrates just how easy it is for us to succumb to the temptation to let our hearts drift from the heavenly things, the kingdom things, to earthly things. See, for Paul, the question isn't, how can I live my life in such a way in order to experience the very best that the world has to offer? That's not Paul's concern. To Paul, that's not the concern of somebody whose life is devoted to following Jesus. To Paul, the question is, how can I use what God has already given me in order to see God's kingdom come and God's will being done on earth as as it is in heaven? How can I use the wealth and the possessions, the the job that I have, the relationships that are, are connected to my life? How can these things be channeled into God's agenda of Jesus' love filling the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the fundamental posture of a person whose heart is genuinely open to God. It's obviously not easy because the the earthly things, the, the best that the world has to offer, the stuff that our heart desires that are good and gracious gifts from God. Those things are so tangible. They're around us all the time. They're realities in the lives of the people that we care about. They're the subject of every advertisement that we get faced with every single day. They're so tangible, whereas kingdom things are so intangible. In fact, Paul makes note of that in verse 3. He says this. He says, you died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Paul says the life that is lived, you know, in a Godward loving direction in some ways is is hidden. It's not visible. The world, we we keep track of a well-lived life by all sorts of different kinds of measurements. By We keep track with dollars and, and square footage and vacation homes and um, spouses and kids and all sorts of other ways that we measure a life well-lived. But when you live your life in a kingdom direction, there aren't the same kind of, of measurements. In some ways, that kind of life is more hidden. I remember years ago, the late Larry King was interviewing a Christian leader and asked her, who is the most influential Christian on the planet today? And she said, Larry, you don't know, and I don't know. It's certainly not the people with the biggest platforms, the biggest names, the biggest salaries. It's probably, she said, some old woman lying in a hospital bed in rural India, dying of cancer, who's done more for the sake of the kingdom of God on earth than anybody else alive. And we will only know when we're all together in eternity. 
which is exactly Paul's point. We only get to see the fruit, the genuine tangible fruit of a life lived in a kingdom direction when Christ is finally revealed and we're all together in eternity. But nevertheless, Paul says fundamental to the posture of following Jesus, foundational to a heart that is open to God, is a heart that is lived in pursuit of and fixated on and obsessed with God's kingdom coming on earth through Jesus by the Holy Spirit rather than being fixated on earthly things. And so what does that look like? I think Paul says two things in Colossians chapter 3 to tell us what this looks like. The first one is this. Paul says a heart open to God is dead to the world. A heart that's open to God is dead to the world. He says in verse 3, he says, you died. So, in verse 5, put to death the parts of your life that belong to the earth. He says two things. He says, number one, he says, you died. When, When you put your faith in Jesus, the person you used to be, the desires you used to have, all of that died with Christ on the cross. The person you used to be doesn't exist anymore. So, Paul says, put to death the person you used to be. Put to death everything that is tangled up with living to experience the very best that the world has to offer. Put all that stuff to death. Let that stuff die. In effect, Paul says that when you're living with this kingdom obsession, rather than fixating on, you know, the best the world has to offer, you, you kind of become dead to the world and the world becomes dead to you. I was thinking about those two phrases because, I mean, think about what we mean when we say that. Like, imagine, you know, this afternoon you or, you know, somebody you care about is going to absolutely crash on the couch and take their Sunday afternoon power nap. If you're watching this at home with somebody else, maybe they've already assumed that position, but they're going to, they're just going to go absolutely unconscious this afternoon in a nap. And what do we say about that person? We say they're dead to the world. And what does that mean? What we mean is no matter what kind of commotion or no excuse me or noise or stimulus the world provides none of it is going to have any impact on this person the world as it is does not have the ability to draw their attention they're dead to the world at the same time sometimes we say about somebody else well hopefully we don't say it but we will say you're dead to me What does somebody mean when they say, you're dead to me? What they mean is, I'm going to live the rest of my life as though you don't even exist. Your presence is irrelevant to my well-being. And that's kind of what Paul is talking about. We, when we put our faith in Christ, we said, I don't want to be the person I used to be. That person needs to die. And so now I'm going to live my life putting that person to death so that I am dead to the world and the world is dead to me. And by the way, that's what the church exists to do. To help you put to death the person you used to be. A couple of years ago in Canada, there was legislation that was passed 
that was called Medical Assistance in Dying, M-A-I-D, Medical Assistance in Dying. And it was basically people who had been diagnosed with terminal illnesses whose death was becoming inevitable and imminent, and it allowed them legally to co-opt the help of the medical community to bring that death into reality so they could die with dignity, essentially. And I don't know what you think about the ethics around that law. The, the questions are complicated. I only bring it up to say that the church exists for a very similar purpose. Not M-A-I-D, medical assistance in dying, but S-A-I-D, spiritual assistance in dying. That's what the church is for, both in its organized form, you know, the programs that we run and that you participate in and so on, but also in its informal form in the community of people who have just surrounded each other to walk together on this journey of living a life that is oriented towards Christ. What we've committed to each other is that we would spiritually assist each other in dying to the people that we used to be. Now, I get that that is painful. It's hard. I heard a pastor say years ago that growth equals change equals pain. Or growth equals change equals loss equals pain. That if you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, that is going to require you to change. And change always involves a loss of some kind. Letting go of something. Uh, setting something free and not having anything to do with it anymore. And that loss is always painful. But this is why we do this journey together so we can support and walk with each other through this difficult journey, this challenging but liberating journey of on the one hand, being dead to the world. And on the other hand, Paul says, a heart that's open to God is a heart that's alive to Christ. If you died with Christ in his death on the cross, you put your faith in Christ, and that person that you used to be died with Jesus on the cross, then God has raised you from the dead, just like God did with Jesus. God has raised you to become a brand new kind of person. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, therefore, if you were raised with Christ, take off the old human nature with its practices and put on the new nature, which is renewed in knowledge by conforming to the image of the one who created it. The, the flip side of putting to death the person that we used to be and all the desires that are all entangled with wanting to experience the very best that the world has to offer. The flip side of putting all of that to death is God raising us up to a brand new life in the shape and in the form of Jesus. That's the whole point of this journey is that we would be increasingly less like who we used to be and increasingly more like Jesus, so that a year from now, we're not the same person that we were in August of 2020, let's say. Um, five years from now, in some ways, we might be unrecognizable to people who haven't seen us in a while because we've changed so much. In 10 years, maybe somebody's reading the stories of Jesus out of the Gospels in the Bible, and they just keep thinking, man, this reminds me of you. 
Because your life, who you are and what you're about just looks so much like the stories that I read about Jesus. That's what this process is all about. The heart that is not fixated on and pursuing and obsessed with experiencing the very best that this world has to offer, but is instead fixated on and pursuing and obsessed with seeing God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God's agenda of filling the world with the love of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. That life slowly dies to who they used to be and slowly becomes more like Jesus. Which again, isn't easy. As they say at the gym, no pain, no gain for you to experience it. You have to be ready for the commitment and the dedication. You have to be ready to do the work and the practices and the exercises. You have to be ready to cooperate with the community that surrounds you, that wants to walk with you, not only to spiritually assist you in dying, but to spiritually assist you in being raised into a new life that looks like Jesus. That's at the foundational level what having an open heart to God looks like. If we're going to talk about what it means to reopen as a church, what it means for us to reopen as a community and for us to reopen as individuals, to become the people in the community that God has called us to be at a foundational level. It's going to call for hearts that are open to God, that are open, that are um, dying to our desires to experience the very best of life in this world and that are being raised by God into the brand new life of looking like Jesus. And everything we're going to talk about for the entire rest of this month are going to be versions and applications and ways in which God wants to do this work in us. And so I invite you into this journey of reopening. As we close in prayer, I'm going to pray a prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed in the letter to the Ephesians, which is the partner letter to the letter to the Colossians that we've been looking at this morning. This was Paul's prayer for them, and I want it to be my prayer for all of us. This is what Paul prays. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Father of glory, I call out to you on behalf of your people. Give them minds ready to receive, receive wisdom and revelation so they will truly know you. Open the eyes of our hearts and let the light of your truth flood in. Shine your light on the hope that you are calling us to embrace. Reveal to us the glorious riches that you are preparing as our inheritance. Let us see the full extent of your power that is at work in us who believe. And may it be done according to your might and power. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.